1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm blessed and honored to be in dialogue today with James Gerritsy. He is the author of the new book, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology, published in Cold Spring Harbor, New York by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press, 2022 james it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today
0: thank you harry it's my pleasure to be with you
1: james is a member of the board of directors of several biotechnology companies in that context can you tell us a bit about how you became interested in biotechnology Uh, where did that come from in your personal life and personal story
0: no, it's a great way to start. And I, I think I say in the book that I stumbled into the orphan drug revolution. I'm not a scientist or a physician. I was working early in my career as a uh, consultant, uh, strategy consultant, advising many different companies uh, on the very different aspects of business strategy. And one of my clients was a healthcare company. And it was a company that uh, at that time, this was in the early 1980s, 1981, uh, was working on and was, was producing therapies for hemophilia, which are, are blood factors. And they were at that time, sourced from a uh, pooled human blood or plasma donations. And that was just at the time the HIV virus was infecting the blood supply and devastating the hemophilia community. And so that led to a focus on how can we provide better drugs for hemophilia patients led to the the biotechnology revolution of genetically engineered safer products for hemophilia and through that and through some of the people i worked with there that led into other orphan drugs and a
1: career working in the field what inspired you to write this book what message do you hope to convey to readers
0: i think there were two basic reasons and two basic messages now the first is that I've been privileged over the last 40 years to work with some amazing people, physicians, scientists, entrepreneurs, families, parents, patients, who've done amazing work to help develop awareness and develop therapies for hundreds of rare genetic diseases in the United States and actually all around the world. And I think their stories deserve to be told. They're heroes. They've worked miracles. And I, uh, I've i been inspired by their stories. And I thought, other I hoped other people would be as well. And I thought other people should know those stories. Uh, The second, uh, maybe larger reason, in a sense, is that the benefits of the orphan drug revolution, which have been widespread and and transformed lives for thousands and thousands of families, again, in the United States and around the world, uh, you know, they can't be taken for granted. And there are reasons why uh, this this innovation can be brought to an end. Uh, There are threats to things like uh, drug pricing that are regularly raised on places like Capitol Hill and if people don't understand the importance of these drugs, and if they don't understand the investment that's required and what's required to sustain that investment, then the Orphan Drug Revolution can be brought to an end. And I, I want to try to ensure that we didn't take it for granted and that its benefits would be brought to the still many more patients
1: and families who need it. What are the primary themes in your book? What story, quote unquote, does your book tell?
0: Well, it tells the story of you know we used to gather a couple of threads. I talk about a couple of sparks that lit lit the revolution, and uh, you know one of those sparks was the uh, re- genetic revolution, starting with the understanding of DNA, the double helix with Watson and Crick in 1953, and then the rise of biotechnology with Genentech and and the understanding of how to use biotechnology to produce drugs. Uh, but but it, but it came together with patients, and ultimately it was family members who wanted treatments for their loved ones their children their siblings their spouses that led them to activate and uh, you know work on capitol hill to get legislation passed to get researchers to work on these diseases and they've changed the world in ways that um, that have been far-reaching and that um, i set an example I think that many people would would welcome learning about.
1: What are orphan drugs? Can you explain what orphan drugs are to an absolute layman?
0: Yeah, that's a great place to start. And uh, the simple explanation is orphan drugs are drugs for orphan diseases. And orphan diseases are basically, in common parlance, rare diseases, typically rare genetic diseases. Um, Officially, in the United States, there's a law called the Orphan Drug Act, which was passed in 1983, that was one of those sparks that lit the revolution. And the Orphan Drug Act defines in the United States an orphan drug as, sorry, an orphan disease as a disease that afflicts fewer than 200,000 people in the United States. And in some ways, you know, that can seem like a lot. But when you think about, you know, 400 million people in the United States one percent of the U.S. population is four million. One tenth of one percent is four hundred thousand. So it's less than half of one tenth of one
1: percent of the population. What are the myths about orphan drugs that your book challenges?
0: Well, the myths, I think, um, <clears throat> I think one of the you could call it a myth that it takes on is, is one of the challenges that orphan drugs have faced from their inception is the question of price. Orphan drugs are typically very expensive. And when when any of us as ordinary people we hear the price of these drugs, there's a there's an understandable kind of sticker shock. You know, if you were to ask how much does a drug for a rare genetic disease that a patient has to take cost, you know, you'd hear an answer that's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You know, a hundred thousand, two hundred and fifty thousand, four hundred thousand dollars a year. And ordinary people say that's unbelievable. How can anybody pay that? But what people need to understand is that in the United States today, 95% of all people have health insurance, and the 5% who don't are typically covered under some kind of patient assistance programs, and, and all drugs approved by the FDA are required to be covered by health insurance. So the real issue for people, patients, and families isn't what you might call the list price of the drug. It's what their insurance companies charge them in terms of you know pays out out-of-pockets, And deductibles and what people who care about access to drugs and the prices of drugs for families should be concerned about is not the list price which is necessary to provide a return to investors but the insurance company provisions that are increasing all the time that are making it more and more difficult for these patients who need them to actually get access to these drugs
1: what dilemmas arise regarding equitable access to orphan drugs what does your book say about such dilemmas?
0: Yeah, no, that's a good question. In the United States, and I would say in most of what we might call a developed world in Europe and Japan, uh, most patients today who are diagnosed with a rare genetic disease for which there's a drug will get access to that drug. The overwhelming majority, and then that goes across any you know, socioeconomic status status based on again the availability of health insurance and you know, Obamacare and uh, patient assistance programs. The really, the really difficult issue around equity and access is a global issue. And as, of course, it's true for many, much of healthcare and much, many things in the world, of course. But but of course, most people in the world you know, don't live in those developed countries. They live in lower and middle income countries and uh, particularly in poor countries, it's very difficult. These drugs are expensive, the access, the healthcare systems don't tend to provide them. And so it's been an ongoing challenge to work with health ministries and academic centers and philanthropies to try to find, you know, initially pilot programs and develop the way to diagnose these diseases, treat first a handful of patients, and hopefully over a long period of time Provide greater
1: access for all the patients who need it. What is patient-centered biotechnology? Where, when, and how did it emerge? What is unique about patient-centered bi- biotechnology as opposed to other forms of biotechnology or other trends in biotechnology?
0: Biotechnology can be used for many things. You know, it can be used for agricultural purposes, it can be used for energy purposes, environmental remediation. Uh, but the, the probably the biggest use is in healthcare and med- developing medicines. And I think with the word patient-centered, you know, there was a time when the pharma industry was very focused on, you know, making money and on very small increments of modest improvements to existing drugs. Patient-centered biotechnology tries to say... Let's talk about what are the biggest unmet medical needs out there. And let's understand the patients who have the most severe debilitating diseases. Let's bring them in. Let's not say that we're going to kind of decide what's best for them. Let's have them at the table. Let's listen to them and their stories, the patient journey, the disease burden. Let's, have, let's understand from them what would they, what do they want in a therapy. Uh, and then let's have them at the table as we think about designing clinical trials as we think about uh, getting drugs through the regulatory authorities, as we think about access. So having the development process led by the patients and families that it's intended to benefit.
1: What bioethical concerns arise in regard to orphan drugs? What is your book's perspective on these debates in bioethics?
0: Uh, You know, there are many, obviously, many different aspects of bioethics. Uh, You know, 40 years ago when biotechnology was just beginning, there was a great concern over genetic engineering, and citizens in many places, particularly places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, and, and the San Francisco Bay Area where the you know the revolution and the industry started, were concerned about, you know, how these genetically modified, you know, organisms might escape and 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 cause damage. That that's actually, I think it's fair to say, never happened in the 40 years of biotechnology. Today, an ethical issue that's on the horizon <clears throat> Is you know the industry and the and the scientific community are increasingly focused on genetic therapies, and uh, genetic therapies have tremendous benefit. A one-time administration can provide a lifetime of benefit, but some people are concerned about you know genetic editing and designing of embryos and fetuses. And you know Walter Isaacson wrote a book called The Codebreaker about the gene editing, and he talks at the end of that about you know some people who. <clears throat> worry about things like so-called designer babies You know, will you know what you might call you know mad scientists or unethical scientists and others try to use these technologies to engineer genes in ways that don't treat disease but that are meant to try to create you know some other some other traits And, and again i i don't think that happens but i think it's important for people to be aware that like any technology the you know, genetic technologies can be misused and to try to make sure that we stay focused on using it for a real medical benefit as opposed to other
1: purposes. How much do orphan drugs cost for patients and consumers to purchase? What can be done to improve and ease access to such drugs?
0: Yeah, we touched on that earlier, and uh, <clears throat> you know it starts with the fact that <clears throat> these drugs, they cost hundreds of millions of dollars individually to develop individual clinical trials can cost a few hundred million dollars. Studies suggest that the average cost, if you average in all the drugs that fail, and most drugs fail, is over a billion dollars to develop a drug. So that's why they cost so much. As, we, as I mentioned earlier, you know they can cost in the range of a, of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for a patient. But again, what's really important for patients is what does their insurance policies provide? Their insurance policy will provide coverage for those drugs. But insurance policies increasingly have rising uh, co-pays and deductibles and what they call cost sharing, which can become prohibitive. So what's really important is for people to focus on what does their insurance policy provide and to try to ensure that insurance policies don't prevent access for the people who need them. I'll give you one other comment on that, you know, just as an example. Sure. Many insurance companies had what they used to call a lifetime cap. And they used to say if a child was diagnosed with a disease, <clears throat> they would reimburse the expenses for therapy, but they would have a lifetime cap of a million dollars was a common number. So as you can imagine, if a drug cost a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, the parents and the families would reach that lifetime cap when the child was still only a few years old. And one of the lesser known, but very important benefits of Obamacare was to ban the use of lifetime caps in health insurance policies. And it's steps like that that are important to continue to provide access.
1: Which are the primary manufacturers and marketers of orphan drugs in the biotechnology industry? What competition do they face in the U.S. market and internationally?
0: Well, there are many companies today. I, I talk in the book a lot about the company that, in many ways, uh, you know, m- most people would agree, pioneered the orphan drug revolution, which was a company I was privileged to work with for over 20 years, named Genzyme Corporation. And uh, Genzyme was here in the Cambridge area, and Genzyme, led by Henry Tamir, who many people consider the kind of the father of the revolution in some ways, uh, pioneered both. The idea that you could develop these therapies, they started with a rare genetic disease called Gaucher disease, and with, with many other people, physicians at the NIH and elsewhere, successfully developed the therapy, but then very importantly, demonstrated that by <clears throat> providing access to that therapy to patients around the world, you could build a sustainable, successful company. And that then led to a flourishing. And so there are many other companies that, you know some of your listeners <clears throat> may know, on the West Coast, uh, from companies from uh, Genentech uh, to BioMarin, uh, Ultragenics. On the East Coast, companies like uh, Biogen, Vertex, Alnylam. Uh, there's a growing number of smaller companies increasingly focusing on those therapies today. They do face much competition, but uh, generally, there are so many different diseases that, quite honestly, most of these companies are working on different diseases rather than competing to try to treat the same rare disease.
1: What diseases are orphan drugs most effective in curing? Can you provide some specific examples of specific cases cases where an orphan drug was successful in curing patients and overcoming a specific disease?
0: Sure. A great example to start with is hemophilia. One of the genetic diseases that people know best was sometimes called the royal disease because of its prevalence in the royal families of Europe and so on. Hemophilia has been on the leading edge of much of the development in these therapies. As I mentioned in the early 1980s, uh, there were very effective therapies sourced from pooled human plasma donations, Mm -hmm. but then they became tainted by the HIV virus. That led to recombinant versions of those factors. Today, Hemophilia is on the leading edge of one-time genetic therapies, some of which have just literally in the last week or two been approved for the first time. <clears throat> so that's been a remarkable success story behind that have come, you know, some diseases your, your listeners wouldn't know that, like I mentioned, Genzyme worked on Gaucher, Fabry, Pompe disease. People don't know those diseases unless they're affected by them or know people who are better known diseases, for which therapies have been developed <clears throat> very successfully include cystic fibrosis, uh, sickle cell anemia, um, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, and a variety of others that, uh, you know, uh, ALS, amyotropic lateral sclerosis, that people know through often celebrities or publicity causes that have brought those names to broad
1: public attention. Can you tell us about the history of orphan drugs? Where, when, and how did they originate?
0: there were in some ways, you know, precedents, uh, you know, that go back many years in some ways, but I think hemophilia, I think it's fair to say was on the leading edge and very effective therapies for hemophilia from blood sources were derived primarily in the 1960s and 70s, learning how to extract and isolate the factor that that hemophiliacs need for for treatment. Uh, But then it really, you know, exploded with biotechnology and uh, with um, the onset of the the biotechnology era in the early 1980s, and has gathered steam ever since. One one statistic people use to just put that in context is the Orphan Drug Act was passed in 1983. In the 10 years, 10 years before that act was passed, fewer than 10 orphan drugs, drugs for rare diseases, were approved by the FDA. Since then, more than 900 have been approved. And today, this year, You know, there are 30 to 50 new drugs approved every
1: year. What legal issues have arisen pertaining to orphan drugs?
0: Um, Legal issues, uh, you know, there are probably many. I mean, uh, sometimes there are questions around intellectual property. Most of these drugs are are covered by patents. And sometimes there are kind of disputes over who owns the right patents and who has access to those patents. But in general, I would say, uh, you know, it's not a field that I think of as kind of driven by legal issues. There are many agreements between companies around partnerships. They're usually, you know, managed amicably. So I don't think of it quite honestly as what you might call a litigious field or, or a field where there are a lot of legal issues that, that sort of dominate
1: the field. How has the American FDA Food and Drug Administration responded to the orphan drugs phenomenon?
0: Now, that's a very important question. The FDA, of course, plays a critical role. And it's it's a kind of what you might call sister organizations in Europe and Japan, the EMA in Europe and a similar organization in Japan are, are, are critical. And they're they're outstanding organizations. I mean, all Americans, I think, should be proud of the quality and dedication that the FDA provides. I've been always impressed by the quality of the FDA's operations the fda was in some ways initially resistant <clears throat> to the orphan drug act because it <clears throat> provided greater you know consultation the agency had to work more closely with these companies which back in the early days it resisted today i think it's embraced that uh, but the biggest issue i would say facing the field today with the fda is uh, the fda is is overworked and stretched and shorthanded and covid only you know exacerbated that <clears throat> so there aren't enough people at the agency to address all of these new programs moving forward and in particular you know we talked about genetic therapies gene therapy cellular therapies these are on the absolute cutting edge of science and to regulate them you know we need people at the fda who really understand them and there are very few people who really understand them that deeply and so unfortunately what's happening today despite a lot of well meaning well intentioned people the fda you know is in many ways a big bureaucracy right many many thousands of employees and so a drug is, you know, an application is submitted and senior people at the FDA will say, oh, yes, these patients are suffering. These are children suffering rapidly, progressing diseases. They're deteriorating quickly. We need to get this drug approved quickly. And then it goes into, you know, the bureaucracy and people there take a somewhat conservative view and they take what you know sometimes is called a box checking view. And they say, well, you know, our requirements are that you run three manufacturing lots and you demonstrate consistency over these three lots and you validate your process and you have all of these very demanding, you know, release specifications. But when you only have a handful of patients, it's nearly impossible to meet those standards. And so we have examples today where drugs have been approved in Europe for a year or more, and they're still pending approval at the FDA because of these requirements that most parents and most physicians would say are actually getting in the way of good public health.
1: Have there been any instances of orphan drugs failing? What kinds of side effects have patients incurred from orphan drugs? How have patients coped with risks and dangers associated with orphan drugs? What are some of the risks and dangers associated with orphan drugs for patients and their health?
0: Yeah, I mean, many, many, many orphan drugs have failed and developed. Most orphan drugs, I think, like most drugs in general, fail somewhere along the way in preclinical or clinical testing before they ever are approved or get to market. Of drugs that have been approved, I I actually can't think right offhand of any that have been withdrawn because of you know problems that were identified later. But I mean, to your point, uh, so they have and they have tremendous medical value, but they're often strong biological agents. And they can have, have side effects. And, you know, the FDA process, of course, requires that there's a label associated with the drug and that the physician has to provide <clears throat> excuse me, you know, informed consent to patients and patients have to be told about the risk. So each individual drug will have a list of risks and they can range from some very mild things like what you might call an injection site reaction. You know, when you get the drug injected, your, your arm is going to swell up and you know, we all know about that. Uh, Some of them can cause, you know, what are called flu-like symptoms, nausea and fever. Some of them, you know, have a risk of causing cancer. Uh, And so people often have to weigh, you know, how severe is this disease? When parents have children who face an otherwise fatal or debilitating disease, you know, they will more often than not, in my experience, say, well, if it will make my child healthy and save his or her life, but there's a risk it will cause cancer in the future. You know, that's a risk I'm willing to take.
1: Why are orphan drugs a quote unquote revolution? What is quote unquote revolutionary about this trend?
0: That's a good question. I think it's it's really I think it's best understood by kind of looking at society broadly. <clears throat> I, I you know I tell a story in the book or I give an example of two children born 40 years apart. One at the beginning of this revolution and one today. Forty years ago, if parents had a child born with a rare genetic disease. First of all, it would typically go undiagnosed for a very long period of time. No one would know <clears throat> what it was or how to diagnose it. They'd be misdiagnosed for years. Uh, finally, if they got diagnosed, uh, you know, at some kind of a medical center, they would typically be told, "Well, we just discovered your child has this disease. We don't know anything about it. There's no therapy for it. There are no drugs and clinical trials for it. So we're very sorry, but <clears throat> you know, prepare." your child to die young or be disabled for life, and, and then they would meet a patient group, patient organization, and basically what they would provide is emotional support to say, hey, you know, we're all, you know, we're all going through this together. Let's comfort each other and let's prepare for the worst. Uh, today, uh, the diseases would typically be diagnosed very early, maybe in a newborn screening test, maybe in early genetic testing, and physicians and academic medical centers would know about these diseases and either there would be a therapy available or there'd be clinical trials and the parents would be able to enroll their child in a clinical trial. And when they went to the patient organization, the patient organization would be very knowledgeable about the disease, would be working with researchers in the field, would be raising money, but not just to comfort people, but to actually try to advance therapies. And, and the patients would get, the parents would get involved in many ways on helping to develop this process for themselves. So it's, it's kind of, I think it's fair to say night and day, and that story could be told for any of hundreds of different rare diseases for which those those different patterns apply.
1: What are the similarities and differences regarding the American debate surrounding orphan drugs and parallel debates taking place in Japan, Israel, India, and Europe? What can Americans learn from the debates taking place in other countries? What can debates in other regions of the world learn from American debates?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think that's best answered in, in two parts in a way, one by looking at other developed or advanced economies and the other by looking at poorer countries. Uh, in the first category, Europe and Japan, there's there's a lot of similarity there. There's a lot of shared knowledge among those groups, those countries, about how to care for these diseases. Uh, I think if there's one thing Americans can learn, I would say from Europe and Japan and many people would say is that you know national health insurance and national health services can be very valuable things. And many, many people in those countries have better health care, without a doubt, as a result of those health insurance systems. Um, so that's one thing I think we could learn here. Um, I think in terms of, you know, when you talk about poorer countries, you, you mentioned India and I talk about India in the book. Uh, India, sadly, you know, there's very limited access to these drugs because they're so expensive and so there it's really more a question of finding ways for these pilot programs to provide access and hopefully provide broader access over time as as economies develop and as as you know companies and philanthropies are better able to provide uh, sustainable support
1: how has the rise of china's economy impacted the orphan drug phenomenon
0: yeah china that's a good question, and that's also a good question for the future. <clears throat> uh, you know, historically, the United States has been the clear leader in biotechnology. So there's world-class science in many countries—Europe, Japan, Israel—you mentioned—but uh, <clears throat> in terms of actually the you know the investment and the entrepreneurship, that has been largely led in the United States. Um, Japan is bi- sorry, China is bidding to overtake that leadership, and the Chinese government has declared biotechnology a strategic national economic pillar they're investing heavily in it they're they're supporting companies they're recruiting you know entrepreneurs and scientists to come back from the u.s and europe to start companies in china there's a very robust uh, both government and private support and over time i think there's a real possibility you know some would say a risk that that china may may take leadership in biotechnology and that you know that, that could have some benefits, but that could present many challenges to the way that these drugs have typically been made available to patients who need them.
1: What does your book teach us about the state of today's pharmaceutical industry?
0: The pharma industry has evolved significantly. <clears throat> you know, the, when I, I talk at the beginning of the book about the fact that every revolution, you know, needs to start against the backdrop of some established order in need of reform, right? And that order in the 1970s and early 80s was the pharmaceutical industry. And as companies had grown larger and larger and passed through generations of leadership, they'd become big public companies with very conservative, financially-oriented managers. And they had lost their their way in terms of, you know, taking risks for real unmet needs. And they had focused on, you know, just maximizing financial returns in very safe ways. Um, And the biotechnology revolution and the success of biotechnology companies you know, and the, and the stagnation of the pharmaceutical industry demonstrated that that was not a long-term, you know, viable path. So over time, as they've seen how these new therapies have developed and been successful, many of them have now embraced orphan drugs and, and companies developing them and licensed in the products or acquired the companies. And they play a very active role today in marketing those drugs around the world and also in investing in the companies are developing them as you know as partners so it's a much more i would say uh collaborative and symbiotic relationship today most of the innovation comes from biotechnology but the pharmaceutical companies provide important resources
1: in your perspective what does the decade ahead hold for orphan drugs
0: well that's that's exactly what the last section of the book talks about is the the next 10 years and um it talks about first of all you know addressing hopefully, the economic and policy challenges to provide sustained support for investment, and that's one aspect that I, I hope we will be successful in. The second aspect, which is much more, you know unknowable, is around science and technologies. And much of that is around the evolution of gene therapy and gene editing. Uh, many of these diseases are, you know, ultra, ultra rare, and people are working on what are sometimes called N of1 therapies for a very specific genetic defect that is only known to afflict one child in the world? And can we find ways to develop those therapies and sustainably provide those? Another thing that I think is very important in the years ahead is a newborn screening. You know, many of these diseases or these therapies are for diseases that strike at birth and they are very rapidly progressive and irreversibly progressive. So a therapy that's effective, but given to a child who's two or three years old, will prevent further, you know, worsening, but will generally not correct what has happened over those first two years. And so, newborn screening programs need to add many of these drugs much sooner, so that uh, patients get access to them even during clinical trials, as opposed to waiting until the drug has been officially
1: approved. Can you tell us? Can you tell us about some of the pioneers who have contributed to advances and in innovation? in orphan drugs
0: Yeah, the book tells the story of many of the people who've been those pioneers it probably starts with two people who deserve credit for being the the true pioneers in a way Uh, abby myers a mother who's often described as the mother of the orphan drug revolution who had a child with a rare disease that led her to take on this cause and henry waxman the congressman from southern california who was chairman of the house health committee for many years who took up the cause and led the hearings that led to the Orphan Drug Act being passed. Um, <clears throat> if you look forward a little further than that, then I think you could look at, I think honestly, the founding of Genzyme and Roscoe Brady uh, at the NIH who really discovered the the defect and the cure in Gaucher disease. And then Henry Tamir of Genzyme who partnered with him to bring that therapy forward. And you know, I think you could even add in there, Robin Ely and her son, Brian Berman, who was the first child successfully treated who. You know, they fought to get treated and who, in a miracle, was the only patient to initially show benefit. And really, you know, without that, the revolution may have stalled badly. And then if you move forward to today, you know, if you look at the companies like Lnylam and Vertex and Ultragenics, there are people like, you know, John Maragonori, Amal Kakis. I think people in the government deserve credit. Janet Woodcock, uh, the FDA, has played uh, an enormously positive role. A venture capitalist, you know, when the orphan drug revolution threatened to stall after Genzyme, you know, stumbled and was acquired. A firm here in Boston, Third Rock Ventures, led by people like uh, Mark Levin and Phil Riley, you know, kind of relit the torch when the torch, you know, was at risk of going out. So I think at different stages along the way, and then maybe to end with one last story there, you know, we talked about these end of one therapies. And the book ends with the story of a physician here at Boston Children's Hospital, uh, Timothy Yu. And a mother, Julia, and her child, Mila, who really pioneered this end of one therapy that's on the cutting edge of you know, where science and medicine may take us in the next decade. So across the full 40 years, I think people have stepped up to play that pioneering role in ways that you know have have caused, created miracles and, and deserve
1: tremendous credit. Can you share some stories of patients who have been positively impacted by orphan drugs? as they appear in your book. What are some are human many, stories just, that might be inspiring or moving?
0: We we just talked about a couple from, uh, you know, from uh, Abby Meyer's family to uh, Brian Berman to uh, Mila. But I'll tell you one story that comes from a very different place that your listeners might find interesting because it was so striking to me. And it's indicative to me of the passion uh, that family Families who are affected by what we are—you know—some of the worst tragedy that can befall a family. How families take that as a mission to make the world a better place and to ensure that their children have not suffered in vain. And I see this. I was out at a conference in San Diego, the Global Genes Conference, recently, and I heard that from so many parents and families that were so inspiring. <clears throat> but just to give you an example of how strong that is, I'll tell you the story of a, a little girl named Needy. Uh, who was uh, eight or nine years old at the time, who lived in India. And she was the first child in India ever to be treated with one of these enzyme replacement therapies for a rare and fatal disease called Pampa disease. And I had the privilege of meeting her with our team in India, visiting her home. Uh, You know, she was already suffering because she was diagnosed late. So she was on a ventilator. She was weakened. But the therapy was clearly working and improving her life. And this family was poor. They had traveled and moved hundreds of miles to be at the only academic medical center that could treat their job their child. They'd given up their jobs, they'd given up everything to, you know, find the care for this child. And and again, you you looked at this situation, and you thought, you know, what a tragedy. And when you talk to these parents, <clears throat> you know, what did they say? They said, We are so grateful. We are so grateful that our child has had the privilege of being able to receive this, you know, miraculous therapy, and we are going to dedicate our lives. To try and ensure that other parents and families who are born with this disease have a therapy available to them. And they did that. They formed an organization, they lobbied the government, and they took again this terrible tragedy and they turned it into a cause to make, you know, to make the world a better place in their child's honor. And I've seen that with so many families, and that's to me, that's been maybe one of the most inspiring aspects of the whole experience.
1: There are many people that you note in your acknowledgments. Is there anyone you'd like to convey gratitude to in the moments we have available? Can you share any examples of people who provided significant moral or material support to this book project?
0: Well, I talk about a number from, you know, the early days, and they're all, they all, I, I value and appreciate them all. I talk about the publisher, Cold Spring Harbor, without whom the book wouldn't exist. <clears throat> but maybe if you ask me that question, I might call out my wife, but honestly, Joan Wood, who has worked in this field with me, was my partner at Genzyme for many years. Today herself is dedicated in the rare disease community, mentoring many people. She's been a mentor and a coach to many physicians and young executives developing their careers. And and it's partially that that spirit of mentorship and coaching that we all need, which I've benefited from and uh, which has has helped, you know, and and I hope will continue to develop uh, the next generation of entrepreneurs and leaders here.
1: Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. As we bring our dialogue to a close, can you tell us what you're involved in now since since this book has come to completion? What have you been devoting your time and attention to since the completion of this book?
0: You know, this cause has been very inspiring and it still inspires me. And uh, so today, you know, I've always thought of it as a mission and it's been very successful in many ways, but there are many ways that the mission, uh, you know, we'd like to continue to extend it into rarer and rarer diseases these ultra orphan diseases into these one-time gene therapies into countries like china where it's not available today so to answer your question i serve on the boards of four or five uh, biotechnology companies today each of which is working to extend that mission into one or more of those ways a uh, gene therapy companies companies working on new rare genetic diseases companies working to provide access in china and with all of those you know ceos and teams i'm I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to extend that mission to to yet another level.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your availability. And thank you for all the research and erudition that went into this monumental book. I cannot thank you enough on a personal level and also on behalf of future readers.
0: Thank you, Eric. That's very gracious of you to say. I, I hope your readers enjoy it, and I appreciate your taking the time to, to draw it out
1: absolutely thank you so much thank you thank you to our listeners uh, I am your host on the new books network Ari Barbalat today I have been in dialogue with James Geraghty we have been discussing his new book inside the orphan drug revolution the promise of patient-centered biotechnology published in Cold Spring Harbor, New York by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press 2022. James is a member of the board of directors for many biotechnology companies in the United States. Thank you.
0: Thank you.